I want you to open your Bible tonight to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to continue on our subject of purpose. That was Paul's idea. I picked up on it last week. The more I think about it, the more I review this again and go over it again and remind myself of these things, the more important I see the message really is. There's a certain kind of significance to what is behind this word purpose as it pertains to the subject matter tonight, that is the church. Because when we ask ourselves the question, I think we asked it last week, why does God have a church? He said, I will build my church upon a rock. It'll be a habitation for me. And you think, why? Well, obviously, like anything else, because it pleases him. Because it's what he wants. That God is going to take a bunch of flawed, sinful, unrighteous people from all walks of life. He's going to do something in them that only he can do, that's save them. He's going to bring them together and put them together as a unit of like-minded believers. While we're all different, he'll give us all one thing to believe. And his work, the work of his spirit will be to bring us into the focus of something new and different in our life. And that's Christ. And the Bible speaks many times in various ways or emphasizes our need to be changed, to grow up into him, for Christ to be formed in us, for me to live as Christ. And the cross is how God brings that about and so forth. But when he brings us all together into a unit, we call it a body, a body of believers. I think it's a mistaken idea today to speak of the body of Christ as a universal church, as a conglomeration of believers all over the world. Because the word body is meant to be a local term. It's what we are when we come together. We don't realize who is what or how to do a lot of things yet, but God brings us together and information begins to flow. God gives information, teaches us his word. It's vital. Now, we said last week the teaching comes from people. We don't come together and hear a voice from heaven that speaks to us for a while. We usually have to listen to one like us, a man, a person, a person who came out of the same flawed background you did. That God uses people to change people. God uses people to, to dispense information to people. He teaches us with teachers. He said in Ephesians 4, where you are, that God gave to the church, verse 11, he gave us apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. We call them ministry gifts, gifts as people. And the purpose of these gifts is to bring something unique to us. Not everybody can do what these people do. You can try hard to do what they do. You can learn as much as you can to be a prophet or to be a, an evangelist, but it only works when God gives it. But God does that. He puts his special anointing. He endues certain people with the ability to do things that work, something that he does. And these ministry gifts that God puts in the church, he said, are for the equipping, in verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministering or serving, 
something we've never always done, until we all come to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to the kind of person that God wants us all to be, so that we're no longer the way we used to be, tossed this way and tossed that way, following this personality, following that personality, following this new doctrine, following that new doctrine, but we become stable because of the teaching of the word. Not something that happens once in a while, but it's a consistent, persistent coming together, a commitment, a dedication to the coming together and of hearing and believing what God is saying to us. And God changes us that way, that we be no more like children, like tossed to and fro. We become the kind of people that he says, and I think in verse 15 or 16, that each one of us begins to contribute to the well-being or the edification of the whole body. That we're not here for somebody to entertain us with sermons because the purpose of the sermonizer, that would be the preacher, the purpose, is, again, is to bring information. If it's anointed, it has a purpose. And the purpose is to show you what God wants you to be. Your faithfulness is when you are willing to do that. This is what really the message of faith would be more about than anything else. It's just a willingness to, to follow the Lord, to do things that he wants. We can't do that unless we know what he wants. It's not always easy to do as evident by the fact that we have trouble with it. But he never gives up on us. He always just keeps coming back and reorients us and gets us back on the right trail. This is what he does, and this is what he's doing. Now turn to Hebrews 13, because we spent a little bit of time there last week. Hebrews 13, and verse 17, concerning these ministry gifts, these men... He said, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. Now, how many of you know that's not intended for somebody to bind you up to do whatever they tell you to do? It's simply a way of saying, give honor or give respect to those that God anoints and puts before you and make it easier for them instead of them having to labor through your personality and wonder what you're thinking and all of that. And he said, just obey them, submit to them. And he said, here's what they do. They watch for your souls. They are attentive, in other words. They have the responsibility and probably an unction, a unique thing. They're feeling something that God stirs them up particularly to do is to have a care about you and can't know everybody intimately and all of that. But when you get enough people together and you keep coming together, you begin to know who they are. Like in Proverbs, he said, a shepherd should know the state of his flocks. That's your job. That's your life's call. That's one of those fivefold gift things. That's what you do. And you didn't realize, you didn't really care about much of anybody but yourself all your life, but now something different is stirring on the inside of you. It's the work of God. God is at work in you doing that. And you begin to be concerned about people, even the ones that aren't concerned about themselves. You begin to seek ways that you can help people or maybe get a word to somebody. They have to do this because this is what's in their heart to do. 
He said, they watch for your souls, and they are responsible to be answerable to God for you as those who must give an account. Does your Bible say that? Of course it does. As they that must give an account. And if you don't care what happens to them, if you do, like I'm sure, in many religious circles, you pay the preacher a certain salary. He's required to preach a sermon. He comes out and preaches his sermon, and whether or not it meant anything, whether or not it addressed needs, preach the sermon, that's what you get paid to do. No such nonsense was ever intended in the church. You don't pay anybody to preach. You may give an honorarium to somebody because you appreciate their word, and, or you may give an offering to somebody to support the ministry because this is all they do. Let those that are taught in the word communicate with those that teach, and uh, so on and so forth. But what he said was, these people watch for your souls. They are answerable to God. In Ezekiel 3, God's word towards the shepherds was, he said, you know, you didn't strengthen them, you didn't heal them, you didn't seek them out, you didn't do this. You just fleeced the sheep, got fat off the wool, and didn't care about the people. But, you know, if it's just a job, if it's just another employment, if it's just something you've learned to do, and you've learned how to marry, and you've learned how to bury, and you've learned how to articulate a sermon... Face it, religion, that's fine. That's good. We'll take it. Some are better of it than others. That's all. And it's not really a passion. It's not really anointed because what God does, I think he puts himself into whatever he's doing. And if they don't speak according to the word, they have no light. And if they have no light, they don't care. And read Jeremiah 7. There's just so much about Jeremiah 7. He said, you know, these people are vain, said in Jeremiah 7, one of those verses. He said, these people are vain. And they're vain because if you pastors, he said, had have stood before me, awaited for my counsel, and gave them a word from me, they wouldn't be like this. I wouldn't have to judge them. That's why God was holding ministry accountable for the well-being of the people. Because one of the things he says is, we have to give an account for your souls. Now, what do you do about the hard heads who don't want to cooperate, don't want to submit their, their own boss, and they're independent? They have no need of all of this. I, you know, I got saved. I don't know when I got saved. I belong to the big church. I don't need the little one. That's their way of thinking. The Bible says you have to give an account. He said, if you can't give a good account for the people you're pastoring, that's not good for them. Does that mean that God... Not only holds the preacher to give an account for their soul, but if he can't give a good account, that God can't either? Let me read it again, because I don't want to get too quiet yet. We're not to a quiet hour yet. He says, for they watch for your souls as they that must give an account, that they may do it with joy. What if I could do this? What if I could go before the Lord and I could say, I want to thank you for bringing Joshua here. I just want to thank you for his urge and his desire and attentiveness, and that he's always here, always trying. I just want to thank you. I ask you to bless him. Would that be good? You'd like it, wouldn't you? I would too. My name was Joshua. <laughs> what if the preacher says, Lord, I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do with Keaton. He's my grandson. I can pick on him. Lord, I, he doesn't care if he hears it or not. He just doesn't care. I mean, he's here, but I mean, he's not here. I mean, you knock on the door and ain't nobody home. 
is that good for him? No. In other words, being sent here to function and to flow and to contribute something for the rest of us and to some way be an edifying part of a body and being recognized as you grow, people can see it. When you can't see that and you know something's wrong and you talk to somebody, and go, ah, well, whatever. Or you hear a rumor, he don't know what he's talking. I know as much as he does. You can't pastor people like that, but they're in a body. And the account that preacher brings is not good because the Bible says, pray that they'll be able to give an account of your soul with joy and not with, what did he say? Not with what? Grief? For that would be unprofitable for you. Trust me with this one. God knows if you're asleep or God knows if you're awake. He knows if you've been bad. He knows if you've been good. <laughs> Only God knows all of that. So you want to make sure that wherever God plants you, make sure you grow and give it your best shot. God holds you accountable for doing that, holds me accountable for urging you to do that. And if you don't want to or you can't, all I can do is say, Lord, I can't do a thing with him or her. Would it be awful if the preacher had to say, Lord, if there's any way you can move her or him away from here, would you do it? I can't do them any good. They're troublemakers and so forth. We don't have much of that problem through the years, especially in the last 20, but things do happen. But the responsibility of the preacher, of the ministry, is to teach and lead and so forth the people. Some things you teach on are not easy. Some things you would rather not teach on. Divorce and remarriage is one of them. There's some things you'd rather not have to answer for all the questions you're going to get. You know people are going to criticize you. You know that, but you also know that subject is in the Bible. And you can beat around the bush all you want to, but if you're a ministry, you're required to teach it. You pray you get it right, and if you're teachable and you didn't get it right, you tell the people, I didn't get it right, but I believe it's right here. Let me correct it. We're not afraid of the truth. We're not trying to run from the truth. Paul said in Acts 20 and verse 27, he said, For I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. Here's what he said. I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. He said in verse 20, the same chapter, he said, I have not held back anything from you that was profitable for you. When you weren't doing well and you could do better, I told you what to do. You were offended by it, but I said it anyway. Because I know it's truth. And the only thing God will use to set us free is truth. And there's nothing worth talking about unless it's true. Now, would you go to 1 Timothy chapter 4? And we'll stay here the rest of the night. We'll end here. Well, the kids start elbowing their mom. Are we through? Not yet. Not yet. 1 Timothy chapter 4 is one of the best sections of Scripture in all the Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. First of all, to a ministry. I might be talking to future ministers here tonight or just rehearsing the fact that we have them in the church and we are in some way related to them. And this is what you should require of them. Hold them to this. And if you're a young man here, you think you might be a minister someday. You better listen quietly or solemnly, but pay attention because here's where it starts. Verse 16 of 1 Timothy 4. He said, take heed unto yourself. 
take heed to yourself. Before you take heed to everybody else, before you see all the mistakes and flaws in everybody else, see your own. Pay attention to how you're living, the way you're conducting all your affairs. People are watching you. When you get in a pulpit, whoever you are, when you get in a pulpit to preach a sermon, you're marked. There's a lot of people that will never let you forget. I heard what you said, and they shouldn't. I mean, if you're going to stand here and speak, you've got to be answerable and accountable here. You are being watched. You're going to be quoted. You're going to be misunderstood on occasion. And some people are going to oppose you. They're going to criticize you and all of that. That's part of the deal. That's part of the life. That's part of the call. That's why, like in Jeremiah's day, God gave him a head like Flint. You, you know, you can be accused of being hard-headed without being a minister, but, but that was the way it was. And he said, I want you to take heed unto yourself. Now, in 1 Timothy 3, would you just look in 1 Timothy 3? We'll come back to 4 in just a moment. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 7, concerning those who take heed unto themselves, he said, they must have a good report of them which are on the outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. You better make sure you're living clean life. You're living above board. Again, you're being watched. You're being scrutinized. You're being calculated. People are wondering, and they will wonder most of your life, do you really mean what you taught? Were you just preaching, or did you mean it? They're given that. Like he said there in that verse, he said, moreover, you, he must have a good report of those who are outside. In the community, do you pay your bills? Are you kind? Are you nice? Do you wave? Are you friendly? Are you a gentle person? Are you a bad neighbor, difficult, hard-headed? This is how you're known. He said the man has to have a good report. Take heed to yourself. This is all a part of it. And he also said in another place in the Bible that he said we are not to give offense to anybody or to anything that the ministry be not evil spoken of or not be blamed. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you're called to preach, if you boys are going to be called to preach or anybody out there, whoever you are, just remember that when you take that stand and you respond to that call, it's forever. It's for the rest of your life. I look for many places where it says retire. And the closest I can get to retire is going to bed at night. Because I've often wondered, do we get to retire? Somebody asked me once, said, when do you reckon you're going to retire? And I said, you know, I still really enjoy what I'm doing. The best part of my day is studying, just sitting back here thinking, sometimes just reading and running through some things. When I really get on something where I'm really into the mode and starting to put things together, I don't know of anything I'd rather do. It's just part of the life, I think. But see, all of that not only benefits you, the ministry, but it's also designed to benefit the people. God has given you something to feed people with because your call is to feed the people. He said that we are to be an example. This is what we do. We're to be blameless in society. Others are to see that you not only 
say what you believe, but you also live what you believe, and therefore they can't find any blame in you living blameless. You think, well, nobody can do that. I think you can. I think people realize that you're human a lot of times and that you can't be strictly perfect by somebody else's code. But if you got a relationship with the Lord, you or me, we will be conscious of anything wrong in our life. Have you ever said something you wish you hadn't said? How about this side? Have you all ever said anything you wish you hadn't said? You knew right away when you said you were wrong, didn't you? That's the way God convicts us. So, you know, it's just a way of saying we're not exactly perfect, but sometimes you have to say, you know, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. Oh, that's all right. No, really, it's not all right. It's not all right. If it was all right, I'd say it again. But it's not all right. 1 Timothy chapter 4. The minister and his example to the flock. He is to lead and he is to demonstrate by leading how you should live. If it's given to him by God and his heart is right and he's living that way, you should be able to see it. Now in 1 Timothy 4, he said this beginning in verse 12. He said to Timothy, let no man despise thy youth. He must have been a young man, a little bit hesitant, maybe a little fearful. But he said, be thou an example of the believers. Now right away, he needs to be a believer himself. You would agree with that. I am sure he is not able to believe everything perfectly. Because Paul one time said to him, God didn't give you a spirit of fear, so quit being so timid and cowering. People are not going to have any respect for you if you keep on cowering and I don't know. He said, be an example of believers. Be who you are. Let God use you. Let nobody despise you because you're young or wish you weren't there because of who you are. But do this. There are six things here. Be an example of the believers, first of all, in word. In word. Now, that word could be the way you talk to each other, your speech, slang words you use, abusive words, critical words, unnecessary words around people. It's easy to do that. Somebody can start talking to me about Politics or about political parties, plural. And it's so easy for me to crank up and say things I probably shouldn't be saying. If you're praying for these people, I don't need to be on their cases, but boy, sometimes it's hard not to. But he said, be an example. Preacher, if you do that, it's all right for your people to do it. And if you're doing it, don't criticize them for doing it because they're doing what you're doing. So he said, be an example unto the believers in speech, whether it's just talking like that or or maybe it's your knowledge of the scriptures. Be an example to be able to quote the Bible. How many of you know it's good to quote the Bible? If you quote it, you're not trying to put on a show. You've been doing it for 40 years, and it's pretty easy to do. And you're not trying to demonstrate how much you know because you really don't know that much. But it's nice to be able to lace your beliefs And the point you want to make with scripture. And that just becomes a part of the way you talk. That's your speech. Second thing he said in verse 12, he said, in conversation. Conversation, I'm sure that you all know, has to do with your behavior, how you act. Listen, if you don't act well at ball games, you should not go. 
If you do not act well in front of a TV with your friends watching a Super Bowl, you shouldn't watch it. If you cannot control yourself in worldly things, then you shouldn't even get close to those worldly things. I don't think he would mind me saying, I'm not going to call his name out, but years ago the boys were playing basketball, playing ball up in Simpsonville, and I was up there to watch, and referee made a bad call. Well, there was a couple of my boys, church boys, hey, yakking pretty good at that guy, and I thought, sitting up there thinking, you know what, Hamilton, you taught these boys, and that's the way they're acting. I said, well, I ain't playing. I'm not doing that. Yeah, but they're missing something in teaching. So I think I said the following Sunday, I said, I watched some of you all play Wednesday night and yakking at the referees and complaining to carry on. Shame on you. Well, that's true. That is shame on you, isn't it? Or does a preacher have a right to say that? If he's not responsible for the well-being of his flock, then it's none of his business. If he's responsible for the well-being of his flock and he sees his flock acting like lions instead of sheep, then he needs to say something. I mean, a sheep doesn't bark like a dog and growl like a lion. <laughs> and so you say, stop it. Don't do that. And I think the one I talked to, he's here tonight, the one I talked to said, brother, you were right. We were wrong. I said it ain't going to happen no more. It probably wouldn't. I doubt if it ever did. But I'm saying our behavior is one thing the world notes about us. I used to hear the word sneak and deacon. Now, I have two of them here, neither one of them are. But there have been places where people in the church could do things and nobody could do much about it because, again, you know, they're paying your salary. You leave them alone. you got no business nosing in their business, they say. And so you get a reputation in the community as being less than honest, less than sincere, and less than, than spiritual. And that's a shame for a preacher who sees that to not deal with that. That's not the way we act. That's not the way I should act. You know, I could tell you stories about preachers that they need to get out of the ministry. I'm not going to go into all that, but a friend of mine, there was a time or two I thought, you need to take a break. You need to get all the way out, all the way and completely out, and shut the doors and take a little time off and re-examine yourself and what you really are, what you're really trying to do, what your purpose is as a representative of Christ in the form of a ministry to a church. Because if they act like you, you can't say anything to them. If they haul off and smack each other across the mouth, you can't tell them not to do that because that's what you did. Can you imagine? I'm not going to tell that story. I halfway did. Paul wrote in Philippians 1.27, said, Only let your conversation or your manner of life be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. When you declare the whole counsel of God to somebody, it becomes a way of life. This is the way. Now live this way, all of us. We are to live this particular way. One translation says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So... He said, be an example of the believers, not only in word, but also in your manner of life, in your behavior. The third thing he mentions back in verse 12, he said, is charity or love. That would be compassionate 
and caring person. When others are angry and fuss at each other, you're not to be angry and you're not to fuss at each other. You have feelings like they do, but you also have to be in control. You cannot allow yourself to feel any way you want to and respond any way you want to. Because there are things that glorify the devil and they dishonor God. And we shouldn't let that be any part of our testimony or the way that we are known by others. But to have love and compassion and regard and concern and to be willing to help, to pray for whatever the need is for a brother or a sister is part of what defines a loving person, a caring person, a compassionate person. It doesn't mean you can't speak the truth in love and get on somebody's case or warn somebody because we're told to warn those who are unruly in the church or those who are not trying or those who are less than what they should be. You only do that because you love them because if they don't change, God's going to judge them. And if you leave them alone, God will judge them. It's just like your children. You spare the rod, you not only spoil your child, but if you don't discipline your child, the Bible says you hate him or her. If you don't care how they act, you're, you're really only sparing your feelings. Oh, they don't like to be spanked. I can't stand to see them crying. Oh, they're going to hate me. So you spare the child for your own self. And the child grows up useless to God. I don't want to get off on that subject either, but in a store yesterday, in a place of business yesterday, here is a, a grown big man and his wife, and there's this kid that's small enough he has to ride in a cart and he would not behave he just yelled and hollered and kicked and shoved and i'm thinking man as big as you are whew. but you see he'll grow up like that god will never be able to use him unless some supernatural visitation comes and he'll go to school and act like that, and a teacher will not be allowed to deal with him. Because if he does, his parents will, you abuse our child. You should have abused his rear end a long time ago. Maybe I grew up a long time ago when they did that, and it was just a course of life. You know, we used to take him out in the hallway with the paddle. As a shop teacher, we'd take him out there with that new paddle and swat him pretty good. And we didn't have much trouble the rest of the year. And every now and then you'd grab the back of one's shirt and, you know, get his attention. They tap him on the shoulder today. We could do that too. But sometimes you just want them to know you ain't going to do that here. You understand? And they, they did. They got it all together. I'm not tough. I just knew that there was limits that you could allow or tolerate in other people. And if you allowed other people to act in the way they want to, they'll override you. They override their parents. Look at our government. I mean, look at the system of our government, the entitlement programs. Give me, give me. My name is Jimmy. I want mine now. And complaining and critical and mean-spirited, lying and cheating and stealing. It's like there's no conscience anymore. But as I said, Sonny, these are the last days. And where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. And you can thank the parents for not disciplining their, their children for all of that. Now, I didn't want to get into all that, but I sure did. But if you love your child, your child becomes a project. You want them to mind. You want them to learn how to communicate and talk. 
How many of you know that grunting is not English? It's not the English language. It's not grunts and sounds. I don't know. Fourthly, he said, be an example in spirit. The kind of spirit you have identifies the kind of person you are. Daniel was described as having an excellent spirit. He was a person who had his life in order. He wasn't loose at all ends. He wasn't a free spirit. His disposition, the way he responded to people and the situations, it probably mature. How many of you know there are people who really are growing up today? There's a lot who are not. And the ones that are not growing up become difficult, hard to manage. But that's the nature of their spirit. That is the kind of person they are in their spirit. And they're very difficult to do anything with. They really are. And it shouldn't be like that, but it is. A fifth thing he said in verse 12, be an example in faith, in believing and trusting God. That's never been easy. It never will be easy. There are bumps in the road. But how many of you know that even if a righteous man falls, God will lift him up? You just have to keep going. But he said, be an example. You know, trust the Lord yourself. Do what you can. Go as far as you're able to go. Some can go further than others. But make it a point. Make it a project in your life. I want to be able, as Proverbs says, I want to be able in my life to trust the Lord with all my heart. I want to be able to do that. And there's some things you trust God for. You think, whoa, man, I don't know about that. Well, that could be a life changer. You know, like the stick that ran in our brother's leg the other day. If that had severed a femoral artery, if you're going to just believe God, you better have it together because if you don't, it's going to be a tough one. But you don't plan on how bad it could get tomorrow. God's in control of that. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted or tested beyond that which you're able but will with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape so that you can bear it. He'll bring you through, but we have to be willing to be faithful. And a sixth thing he says, be an example in purity. No unclean habits in your life, whether you're private and alone in your house or in your life, or out talking and using unclean phrases, laughing at unclean jokes, None of that kind of stuff. You need to be free from all the accusations that the devil will bring against you and that people will use against you because you're in the ministry. Let's face it. If a skeptic can satisfy himself that you're not the real deal and you're just a, another one of those preachers that's looking for money, he will draw back and says, I'm my own man. I can do it my own way. I don't need him. I don't need anybody. I've got all that I need. So then I ask myself, then what is your purpose in life? What was the purpose for a church? Do you not have a purpose in being there? Is there not a purpose for you being in it? God didn't put perfect people there that you can find no little extra ticks about. They're like you in a lot of ways. Well, I followed Brother Hamilton through town the other day, and he didn't know I was following him in a 35-mile zone. He was doing 38 miles an hour. Oh, a big leader, that is. Uh, you're wrong. Wrong. Guilty as charged. I'm going to repent. 
Let me ask you, what else can I do? You can't say, well, you want to take some blood? Okay, go ahead and cut something here and I'll just bleed it out. All we can do is say, I'm sorry and repent. Have you, any of you ever made a mistake? Now, you can either say, well, I'm a victim. <laughs> you are, I guess. Or you can say, you know, I knew better than that. I knew better than that. Whew, I shouldn't have done it, but I, I did. I can't change it. I can't go back and bring yesterday back. You know, there's things you can't change. The sped arrow, you can't get it back. When you throw the pillows with all the goose down in it, you can't get all them little feathers back. Once you do it, it's done. All you can do is live with the consequences. You can repent and say, I'm sorry. Listen, but the devil still has little compartments of 50 years ago. And he tries to throw my past back at me more than you think. Constantly reminding me, as he does you, of your shortcomings. And who do you think you are? Boy, and all you can do is just, Lord, and that's all you can do. I'm sorry. I repent. That won't happen again. And mean it. That won't happen again. And the more you say that and you mean that, the more and more the devil loses his grip of your life. The more he does. But that's what happens. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 4. When ministers begin to realize the call on their life and what they should do, there are things that he must himself do, ministerially speaking, to keep himself spiritually keen or alert. He doesn't just preach on Sunday, come in on Wednesday, say a few words and go home and through the rest of the week just live as you normally... How many of you know that the life has to be laced with communion? Anybody that I think is called, you men are called, one of the things that will identify your life is time you spend with God. I don't mean you have to be on your knees with your hands folded and your eyes closed. Because you will want to listen to the right thing. Whether it's a music tape that inspires you, Lord, are they increasing? You know, that always inspires me, Psalm 3. Or some preacher that's preaching a real good sermon. Or a book you want to read about something that they say. That, that's being said about theology or about a subject you're studying on. Or a lot of things. You avail yourself to the literature and, and all the things that God has for you. You know, I only have a couple thousand books in my library. Some, you know, Brother Guthrie probably has 5,000. I don't know. But it's nice to have information on any subject you can think of in the Bible that if you need to know what you should believe, you got some sources to go to, and God can show you. But you have to go to the source. You know what I'm saying? You have to look for it. As I told you once, a guy one time thought I just came out here. He didn't really believe this. He was just trying to needle, but he thought I just came out Wednesday night. Okay, everybody. Okay, open your Bibles to, uh, how do you say that? Eclaxesia. He thought, you know, do you ever spend time studying? No. No, people still do that. <laughs> Study? No. Sometimes you study what you've known for 40 years because there's always some more 
that God can add to what you thought you understood the whole thing. God can bring a new stream of light into that and make it better. But you got to look for it. Now, that's not only true ministerially, but that's also true with people that listen. The more you hear and the more you get an appetite for spiritual things, the more you should demonstrate your desire to feed that appetite on spiritual matters. Notice he said in verse 13, he said, until I come, do this. Give attention to reading. Now, whether that's just reading in your office, reading in your home, or just reading at the breakfast table. I do that every morning that I teach, especially. Just read. It's becoming a joy to read, just to read. I find, even in reading like now in Ecclesiastes, that's gotten interesting all of a sudden. It's opened up a little bit more. I begin to see some daily example things. You know why God shows you things like that? So you're better equipped to show it to other people. I don't think people will ever think you're really smart. But the anointing of God doesn't have to be smart. It just has to have an effect. That's all. Like Paul said, my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power. In other words, God uses common men, but he equips them, he anoints them, and he flows through them. And that's the game changer for us as far as our spiritual life. But he says to read. We read in order to learn. We read in order to be edified. We read in order to be encouraged. Or perhaps it means reading publicly. They did that in the Bible. But look at the second thing he said, exhortation and doctrine. Till I come, do this. Give attention to reading, to exhortation and doctrine. Let me use those two together. Start with doctrine. Doctrine means teaching. It's the teaching and obviously the content of the teaching. It could be systematic theology. It could be a verse by verse through the Bible. But it's taking the content of Scripture. God shows you how people should understand it, and you teach that. You just speak, this is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. This is the background, the historical uh, background and what was going on when this was written or where Paul was. He was in a jail or he was on a missionary journey, and he said this probably because he had encountered this and found that, and so he said this, and uh, that's teaching. That's the kind of information that opens and expands our minds to what God is saying. We need that. Exhortation, on the other hand, is emphasizing the application of all of this. I mean, more and more, I'm beginning to see how important exhortation is. In fact, I believe that every one of you, maybe didn't know, but every one of you have exhorted. All of you have. The person who you're talking to said, well, you know, the Lord showed me this. That, you know, a man has got to do this. He's got to put himself in this place, and he's got to have a mindset and a will to, and if we don't do this, you know, we're in trouble. That was an exhortation. See, it wasn't precise teaching, but what has been taught has come in as kind of a picture. I see it like this. This is a way that we've got to live. If exhortation is left out of our lives, we're going to try to be little theologians. 
and not pay a whole lot of attention to how we live, our mistakes or our failures, that we don't deal with them. But there's far more to the Christian life than just learning our ABCs. Because application, that's where the word wisdom comes in. Knowledge is wonderful, trust me. It puts you on a foundation that you know is real. But the power of it comes when you live it and God supports it. And knowing how to make application of God's word and the reason for living the way God wants you to live usually comes through exhortation. Let me point you, put your finger there. I want you to go with me like to Acts chapter 14. Here's what God said in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 15 verse 4. He said, for the Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. And I found that verse years ago. I wrote that in my Bible. That's a desire of my heart. The Lord God would give me the tongue of somebody who has learned the truth. So that I will be able to speak a word in season. Not explaining scripture, but to a person who is weary to encourage him. To show him that the Bible said this because this is what God does with his word. We begin to exhort one another, as the scripture says. Acts 14, 22. Confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith. And that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Exhorting one another. See, it's not just a ministry thing. I still believe if there's anything in my life that identifies me, I think it's exhortation and exhorter. Just calling attention to the way we should live. You know, teaching is wonderful. I would love to be a, a teacher, be able to do that well. But while it, that may not be my best thing to do, there's some things to me that are natural to do. Because I lived on the other side of the railroad tracks for a long time. I lived like sinners lived. I understand that. I know what goes on in their mind and how you feel. Even after you get saved, the things that haunt you, the things the devil tries to use to make you feel inferior and shows you all your mistakes and all the bad and dumb things you did and used to say. And it's like he never leaves you alone, constantly trying to dethrone you, take you down and dismantle you so that you just lose hope, fate, no good. Because you have a lot of bad days. You have a lot of days in which... It's a mental game. Now, if you want to be a preacher, I don't know why you would, but if you do, that's part of it. You're never good enough. It never turns out the way you want it to. There was always something wrong with what you said. Your answer you gave was not exactly right. And you drive away from all of that, you go home from having done any of that stuff, and the devil's there to condemn you every step of the way. Every week. For 40 years doesn't stop. You have to deal with it. You say, well, I'd probably get used to it. Never get used to it. You blame yourself. That's what the devil would have you do. Self-condemnation. Sometimes you deserve to be disciplined and brought to bear yourself. But this business of exhortation, it's not easy. And sometimes we have to encourage each other. Sometimes we write that note to somebody. 
You speak a word in season to somebody you know they're going through trials. They're having a hard time with their kids, with their wife, or husband, job, money. And there's a struggle in their life. And God shows you just something to say, you know, brother, sister. Uh, I know you're going through some things. I don't want to talk about it, but just want to encourage you that God is faithful. He has said in his word, and you quote the word, that's an exhortation. It was brief, but it was still an exhortation. It's one of the things every joint supplies in Ephesians 4 in the body of Christ. It's how we do our part to care for and connect with other people. Or like the word love, and in Colossians 3, he said it's the bond that holds us together. I don't think you can be held together and connect with each other without words. And sometimes our words are just quoting to other people or reminding other people of what the Bible says. That's a form of exhortation. That's one of the things you do. In Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13, because this is for you. This goes to the congregation. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13. He said, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Does your Bible say exhort one another? Do you realize that's a duty and a responsibility that we have to each other? Now, I'm not going to practice some exhortation and say, okay, what poor soul am I going to level this on today? But you just study the word. Let God bring it forth. I don't want to abort any movement of God. If God has it there, it's supposed to, or a ministry, let God bring it forth. You don't need to push and shove. Just let God bring it forth. Go back to 1 Timothy chapter 4. In verse 14, he said, Timothy, neglect not the gift that is in you. Remember when we laid hands on you, the men, the elders, the presbytery, we laid hands on you and there was an impartation. Maybe it was prophetic. Maybe it was tongues and interpretation. Uh, I don't know. But there was some kind of a gift that was imparted to this young man, Timothy. Now, he obviously didn't feel the effect of that gift all the time because Paul had to exhort him. Come on, Timothy. Don't let people despise your youth. God didn't give you a spirit of fear. You've got something in you that's special, so have confidence in it. Let's go. But he said, but exhort one another daily while it's called today. And he said, don't neglect the gift that is in you. Now, put your finger there again and turn to Romans 12. See which one of these belongs to you. Which one of what? Well, turn to Romans 12 and see. Verse 4. For as we have many members in one body, that's what we're talking about here at the church, and all members have not the same office. We're all different. We have different functions. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and everyone is a member of one another. Now, having then gifts Differing according to the grace that is given to us. Notice it, whether prophecy, prophesy according to the proportion of your faith, or ministry or serving. Let us wait on it. Let, let God bring it forth. Don't try to force it on somebody. Just let God bring it forth. Or he that teaches on your teaching. 
Oh, I've got a word. I've got a word. Then let God open a door for you. Let him do it. Don't be so hasty. Verse 8, or he that exhorteth, or an exhortation, or he that gives. Do it without everybody knowing you did it. Do it with simplicity. Or he that rules and that stands in the place of authority. Do it with diligence. Give it your very best. Apply yourself. And he that shows mercy, do it cheerfully. And let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one toward another. Love in brotherly love. In honor, preferring one another. Not slothful in your business. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation. Continuing instant in prayer. This is the kind of life we live. We all have a part to play. There's a life we all must live. And the things that contribute to the success of that life are usually little things that we do with each other. You know, the sermon's good. Uh, the, the anointing is always good. But we all will find something special that we have that we can share with somebody else. Some of you have a knack for just doing things. Just getting things done. You know what would happen if you left it up to me? There'd be cobwebs all over the wall and this and that. But see, there's people here that have a different gear. There are people here who do things that inspire others to do things. Whether you go to a missionary field or you meet with the youth and you meet in homes and you talk and you share or you pray together, everything contributes. It's what a body, it's what a church ought to be like. None of us should be left out and left at home to watch TV and spend the whole week without being in fellowship. I don't know where you go with it. I don't. I really don't know where that goes or what happens to all of that. Go back to 1 Timothy 4 and verse 15. Paul said, meditate on these things. Meditate, that means to ponder, think about it. Let God show you something. Just be still. Just be still sometimes. Turn everything off. Turn the radio, the TV, the computer, turn it off. Command your will. You are going to reflect on what you heard last night. If you took some notes, you're going to look at those notes. And you're going to think about it. You're going to ponder it. You're going to ask yourself the question, what did God say to me? Did he say anything? I don't know if he said anything. Then did you listen? Oh, yeah. Well, then he said something to you. What are you thinking about? So you ponder. What a healthy thing to do is to think. Not about your weaknesses and your faults. That's never good. The devil is going to throw that at you, but that doesn't mean you have to think about it. We're told to think about things that edify and things that are good. He told the psalmist, meditate. Remember that? Meditate. For a man who meditates, he's like that tree planted by the rivers. The leaf never fades. Fruit's always in his season. Everything he does prospers. Everything works well for you. That's how God's influence in your life affects your life. This is the way it works. You've got to be willing. And boy, trust me, the devil will fight you. 
He can make you spiritually lazy to where a day goes by and you get in bed and you think, you know what? Wow, what if you lay in bed and you say, I don't think I spent 30 seconds praying for anybody today. Myself, the church, my family, what I'm hearing, my own life, my own needs. Lord, I don't think I spent 30 seconds, maybe not even 20. I don't think I have any clue to a spiritual relationship with you. How many you know a teaching should address that at some point? We get lazy because we're doing all right without that. And consequently, we've also gotten quiet. We started to wonder what's wrong. We start to drift. We start to take things for granted. And the joy and the exuberance that John was speaking of the other night, that, you know, that we once had, we find it's just a memory. Something in the past. Something hard to relate to now. Not, wouldn't know how to connect with that again. I've heard all these stories. I just don't know what's going on. See, you meditate. You start thinking, Lord, what am I doing? What is my greatest need? What am I? Oh, Lord. So you ponder. Teach me thy ways, O Lord, that I may walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to reverence and fear your name, and I will praise you, Lord. That's the kind of people we ought to be. I think a part of what we're doing tonight when we come together should lead us to that goal. Because if we come in here dull and we leave dull, there is nothing going on in this assembly. A lot of noise, a lot of sermons, but no spiritual activity. That's not a good situation, is it? I'm not saying that's the way it is. I'm just saying if that's the truth, that nothing's working right. But he said back in 1 Timothy 4 again, he said, meditate on these things and give yourself how? How you spell it? W-H-O-L-O-Y. That means entirely, doesn't it? What if it doesn't? Then it's just a part-time job, isn't it? He said, give yourself completely to this ministry. You can't do this and do some other. You can't, you can't have a job out there and do this. You say, well, I don't know about that. Well, I heard it said years ago. I heard Brother Freeman say that. And I thought, well, I, I know a few men that have a little church. It's a small church, and they can't support them. And they have to take a job to take care of themselves. You know, Paul was made tents to support himself. Yes, and he made tents to support himself so they couldn't accuse him of preaching to them for money. He said, I, 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 could, I had a right to what you, what you could have given, but I didn't want anybody to accuse me of doing that. So you see, there's a, there's a lot to learn. I mean, God has a lot of things to say to us about putting yourself into this, applying yourself, putting yourself into your ministry all the way, and uh, doing the work of ministry from the heart knowing that the souls of men have been put into your charge and that God holds you accountable. Whew. Would you like that? Maybe you would because you didn't say anything. But here's the deal. 
O thou quiet gathering. Here's the deal. Verse 16. We'll close with this. We'll commence our final words. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 16. These things I just described may be in lofty terms. I doubt it. He said, for in doing this, well, let me get the first part again. Take heed unto yourself and to the teaching. Now stay with it and continue in it. For in doing this, for in doing this, what happens? Two things happen. First Timothy 4 and verse 16. For in doing this. Doing what? From verse 12 down to verse 16. This admonition he gave. For in doing this, you do what? You not only save those that hear you, does that mean that through this word, God's going to save you? You say, well, I've been sitting here for five years. I'm not getting much out of it. Just keep coming. Let's believe this. I'm going to believe verse 16. If you're hearing this, if I'm doing my job, you're doing your job, God said he will save those that hear you. And he will save himself. Salvation. Let me close with this thought. The work of salvation is the work of God. That's what we're doing right now. The saving process with all of its little details, all of its little corners and little angles, all of this being brought together. You're working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You're, you're, you're exercising yourself unto godliness or a right relationship with God. You're going through your trials and you're down and you're up and you're down and you're up and oh me, but God brings you through. Amen. And you hear it again and you hear it again and you hear it again and again and again and again. And you find like, oh, and you don't find yourself saying, do we have to hear the same sermon again? It ain't in your heart. It ain't in your heart because there's always something new that God can add to what you thought you knew everything about. And so you begin to realize that God is loving you into his kingdom. Luring you away from all those things that hold you back. All that darkness that covers your mind, he's sweeping it all away just by hearing the word. Think of it. He said, my words are spirit and what? John 6, 63, remember that? For my words are spirit and life. Man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word of God. It is vital. It is necessary. It is essential. And without that, all we have is a form of religion. But with that, we have hope. With all of these things that God is saying, we really do have hope. This, then is for me our purpose for being here and God's purpose for bringing us here to make us into the kind of people that he takes to heaven. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for what you say in your word. I pray you give us a heart that can receive it, ears that can hear it, eyes that can perceive it, 
that you would help us put things together so that we can focus on your kingdom and realize that we're not here to compete with each other. We're here to grow together into a body, a unit, to become one with Christ together. That not only that Christ would be formed in us, Lord, but that he would live through us. Now, there are people sitting before me tonight who have needs, deep, sincere, spiritual needs. I believe there's a time, Lord, tonight for an awakening, for a shaking of the shoulder to awake from our drowsiness, a call to stand and to arise and to give the more earnest heed to what we're hearing. And to prepare ourselves for the days that we're in. And be able to say at the end of these days, when it's all over, that we can hear the Lord say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I ask you to bless us that way tonight in Jesus' name.